Harry Potter had entered the Great Hall. Draco watched him closely. There was no alarm on Harry's face, as he saw. No surprise or shock. He just looked... It was the same distant, self-absorbed look Harry wore when he was trying to figure out the answer to a question Draco couldn't understand yet. Draco hastily shoved himself up from the bench of the Slytherin table, saying, Stay behind! and walked with all decorous speed toward Harry. Harry seemed to notice his approach just as the other boy was turning toward the Ravenclaw table, and Draco gave Harry one quick look, and then walked right past him, straight out of the great hall. It was a minute later that Harry peered around the corner of the small stony nook where Draco had waited. It might not fool everyone, but it would create plausible deniability. Quietus, said Harry. Draco, what... Draco took the envelope out of his robes. I have a message for you from father. Huh? said Harry, and took the envelope from Draco, and tore it open in a rather unneat manner, and drew forth a sheet of parchment, and unfolded it, and Harry gave a sharp intake of breath. Then Harry looked at Draco. Then Harry looked back down at the parchment. There was a pause. Harry said, Did Lucius tell you to report on my reaction to this? Draco paused for a moment, weighing, and then opened his mouth. I see he did, said Harry, and Draco cursed himself. He should have known better, only it had been hard to decide. What are you going to tell him? That you were surprised, said Draco. Surprised, Harry said flatly. Yeah, good. Uh, tell him that. What is it? said Draco. And then, as he saw Harry looking conflicted, If you're dealing with father behind my back... And Harry, without a word, gave Draco the paper. It said, I know it was you. What the... I was going to ask you that, said Harry. Have you got any idea what's up with your dad? Draco stared at Harry. Then Draco said, Did you do it? What? said Harry. What possible reason would I... How would I? Did you do it, Harry? No, Harry said. Of course not. Draco had listened carefully, but he hadn't detected any hesitation or tremor. So Draco nodded and said, I've got no idea what father's thinking, but it can't... I mean, it can't possibly be good. And, um, people are also saying... What? said Harry warily. Are they saying, Draco? Did a phoenix 
really take you to Azkaban to try to stop Bellatrix Black from escaping? Aftermath. Neville Longbottom. Harry had only just sat down at the Ravenclaw table for the first time, hoping to grab a quick bite of food. He knew he needed to go off and think about things, but there was a tiny remaining bit of Phoenix peace, even after the encounter with Draco, that he still wanted to cling to, some beautiful dream of which he remembered nothing but the beauty and the part of him that wasn't feeling peaceful was waiting for all the anvils to finish dropping on him, so that when he went off to think and be by himself for a while, he could batch process all the disasters at once. Harry's hand grasped a fork, lifted a bite of mashed potatoes toward his mouth, and there was a shriek. Every now and then, someone would shout when they heard the news, but Harry's ears recognised this one. Harry was up from the bench in an instant, heading toward the Hufflepuff table, a horrible, sick feeling dawning in the pit of his stomach. It was one of those things he hadn't considered when he'd decided to commit the crime, because Professor Quirrell had planned for no one to know— And now, afterward, Harry just hadn't thought of it. This, Hufflepuff said with bitter intensity, is also your fault. But by the time Harry got there, Neville was sitting down and eating fried sausage patties with snippy fig sauce. The Hufflepuff boy's hands were trembling but he cut the food and ate it without dropping it. Hello, General, Neville said, his voice wavering only slightly. Did you fight a duel with Bellatrix Black last night? No, Harry said. His own voice was also wavery, for some reason. Didn't think so, said Neville. There was a scraping sound as his knife cut the sausage again. I'm going to hunt her down and kill her. Can I count on you to help? There were startled gasps from the mass of Hufflepuffs who had gathered around Neville. If she comes after you, Harry said hoarsely, if it was all a terrible mistake, if it was all a lie, I'll defend you even with my life. Won't let you get hurt for what I did, no matter what. But I won't help you go after her, Neville. Friends don't help friends commit suicide. Neville's fork paused on the way to his mouth. Then Neville put the bite of food in his mouth, chewed again, and Neville swallowed it. And Neville said, I didn't mean right now. I mean after I graduate Hogwarts. Neville... Harry said, keeping his voice under very careful control. I think, even after you graduate, that might still be a just plain stupid idea. There's got to be much more experienced auras tracking her. Oh, wait, that's not good. Listen to him, 
said Ernie Macmillan, and then an older-looking Hufflepuff girl, standing close to Neville, said, Nevy, please think about it. He's Roy. Neville stood up. Neville said, Please, don't follow me. Neville walked away from all of them. Harry and Ernie reaching out involuntarily toward him, and some of the other Hufflepuffs as well. And Neville sat down at the Gryffindor table, and distantly, though they had to strain to hear, they heard Neville say, I'm going to hunt her down and kill her after I graduate. Anyone want to help? And at least five voices said, Yes! And then Ron Weasley said loudly, Get in line, you lot. I got an owl from Mum this morning. She says to tell everyone she's called Dibs. And someone said, Molly Weasley against Bellatrix Black. Who does she even think she's kidding? And Ron reached over to a plate and hefted a muffin. Someone tapped Harry on the shoulder, and he turned around and saw an unfamiliar, green-trimmed older girl who handed him a parchment envelope and then quickly strode away. Harry stared at the envelope for a moment, then started walking toward the nearest wall. That wasn't very private, but it should be private enough, and Harry didn't want to give the impression of having much to hide. That had been a Slytherin system delivery, what you used if you wanted to communicate with someone without anyone else knowing that the two of you had talked. The sender gave an envelope to someone who had a reputation for being a reliable messenger, along with ten knuts. That first person would take five knuts and pass the envelope to another messenger along with the other five knuts, and the second messenger would open up that envelope and find another envelope with a name written on it and deliver that envelope to that person. That way, neither of the two people passing the message knew both the sender and the recipient, so no one else knew that those two parties had been in contact. When Harry reached the wall, he put the envelope inside his robes, opened it beneath the folds of his cloak, and carefully snuck a peek at the parchment he drew forth. It said, Classroom to the left of Transfiguration, 8 in the morning, L.L. Harry stared at it, trying to remember if he knew anyone with the initials L.L. His mind searched, searched, retrieved. The quibbler girl, Harry whispered incredulously and then shut his mouth. She was only ten years old. She shouldn't be in Hogwarts at all. Aftermath Lesarth Lestrange Harry was standing in the unused classroom next to Transfiguration at 8am, waiting. He'd at least managed to get some food into himself before facing the next disaster, Luna Lovegood. The door to the classroom opened, and Harry saw, and gave himself a really hard mental kick. One more thing he hadn't thought of, one more thing he really should have. The older boy's green-trimmed formal robes were askew. There were red spots on them, looking very much like small dots of fresh blood, 
and one corner of his mouth had the look of a place that had been cut and healed by a pisky or some other minor medical charm that didn't quite erase all the damage. Lesarth Lestrange's face was streaked with tears, fresh tears and half-dried tears, and there was water in his eyes, a promise of still more on the way. Quietus, said the older boy, and then... Hominum revilio, and some other things while Harry thought frantically and without much luck. And then Lasarth lowered his wand and sheathed it in his robes, and slowly this time, formally, the older boy dropped to his knees on the dusty classroom floor, bowed his head all the way down until his forehead also touched the dust and Harry would have spoken, but he was voiceless. Lesarth Lestrange said in a breaking voice, My life is yours, my lord, and my death as well. I, Harry said, there was a huge lump in his throat and he was having trouble speaking, I didn't have anything to do with it. He should have been saying, should be saying right now. But then again, the innocent Harry would have had trouble speaking too. Thank you, whispered Lesarth. Thank you, my lord. Oh, thank you. The sound of a choked-off sob came from the kneeling boy. All Harry could see of him was the hair on the back of his head, nothing of his face. I'm a fool, my lord, an ungrateful bastard, unworthy to serve you. I cannot abase myself enough, for I... I shouted at you after you helped me, because I thought you were refusing me, and I didn't even realize until this morning that I'd been such a fool as to ask you in front of Longbottom. I didn't have anything to do with it, Harry said. It was still very hard to tell an outright lie like that. Slowly, Lesarth raised his head from the floor, looked up at Harry. I understand, my lord, said the older boy, his voice wavering a little. You do not trust my cunning, and indeed I have shown myself a fool. I only wanted to say to you that I am not ungrateful, that I know it must have been hard enough to save only one person, that they are alerted now, that you can't get farther, but I am not ungrateful. I'll never be ungrateful to you again. If ever you have a use for this unworthy servant, call me wherever I am, and I will answer my lord. I was not involved in any way. But it got easier each time. Lesarth gazed up at Harry, said uncertainly, Am I... Dismissed from your presence, my lord. I'm not your lord, 
Lysarth said, Yes, my lord, I understand, and pushed himself back up from the floor, stood straight and bowed deeply, then backed away from Harry until he turned to open the classroom door. As Lysarth's hand touched the doorknob, he paused. Harry couldn't see Lysarth's face as the older boy's voice said, Did you send her to someone who would take care of her? Did she ask about me at all? And Harry said, his voice perfectly level, Please stop that. I was not involved in any way. Yes, my lord. I'm sorry, my lord, said Lasarth's voice, and the Slytherin boy opened the door and went out and shut the door behind him. His feet sped up as he ran away, but not fast enough that Harry couldn't hear him start sobbing. Would I cry? wondered Harry. If I knew nothing, if I was innocent, would I cry right now? Harry didn't know, so he just kept looking at the door, and some unbelievably tactless part of him thought, Yay! We've completed a quest and got a minion! Shut up! If you ever want to vote on anything ever again, shut up! Aftermath, Amelia Bones Then his life isn't in danger, I take it, said Amelia. The healer, a stern-eyed old man who wore his robes white, he was a muggle-born and honouring some strange tradition of muggles, of which Amelia had never asked, although privately she thought it made him look too much like a ghost, shook his head and said, Definitely not. Amelia looked at the human form resting unconscious on the healer's bed. The burned and blasted flesh, the thin sheet that covered him for modesty's sake having been peeled back at her command. He might make a full recovery. He might not. The healer had said it was too early to say. Then Amelia looked at the other witch in the room, the detective, and you say, Amelia said, that the burning matter was transfigured from water, presumably in the form of ice. The detective nodded her head and said, sounding puzzled, It could have been much worse, if not for... How very nice of them, she spat, and then pressed a weary hand to her forehead. No, no. It had been intended as a kindness. By the final stage of the escape, there would be no point in trying to fool anyone. Whoever had done this, then, had been trying to mitigate the damage. And they'd been thinking in terms of auras breathing the smoke, not of anyone being attacked with the fire. If it had been them still in control, no doubt, they would have steered the rocker more mercifully. But Bellatrix Black had ridden the rocker out of Azkaban alone. All the watching auras had agreed on that, 
They'd had their anti-disillusionment chants active, and there had been only one woman on that rocker, though the rocker had sported two sets of stirrups. Some good and innocent person, capable of casting the Patronus charm, had been tricked into rescuing Bellatrix Black. Some innocent had fought Baryu one hand, carefully subduing an experienced aura without significantly injuring him. Some innocent had transfigured the fuel for the muggle artifact on which the two of them had been to ride out of Azkaban, making it from frozen water for the benefit of her auras. And then their usefulness to Bellatrix Black had ended. You would have expected anyone capable of subduing Bari One Hand to have foreseen that part, but then you wouldn't have expected anyone who could cast the Patronus charm to try rescuing Bellatrix Black in the first place. Amelia passed her hand down over her eyes, closing them for a moment in silent mourning. I wonder who it was, and how you know who manipulated them, what story they could possibly have been told. She didn't even realize until a moment later that the thought meant she was starting to believe. Perhaps because, no matter how difficult it was to believe Dumbledore, it was becoming more difficult not to recognize the hand of that cold, dark intelligence. Aftermath Albus Dumbledore it might have been only fifty-seven seconds before breakfast ended, and he might have needed four twists of his time-turner, but in the end, Albus Dumbledore did make it. Headmaster! squeaked the polite voice of Professor Phileas Flitwick as the old wizard passed him by on his way to his seat. Mr. Potter left a message for you. The old wizard stopped. He looked inquiringly at the charms professor. Mr. Potter said that after he woke up, he realized how unfair had been the things he said to you after Fawkes screamed. Mr. Potter said that he wasn't saying anything about anything else, just apologizing for that one part. The old wizard kept looking at his charms professor and still did not speak. Headmaster, squeaked Phileas. Tell him I said thank you, said Albus Dumbledore, but that it is wiser to listen to phoenixes than to wise old wizards, and sat down at his place three seconds before all the food vanished. Aftermath, Professor Quirrell. No, Madame Pomfrey snapped at the child. You may not see him. You may not pester him. You may not ask him one little question. He is to rest in bed and do nothing for at least three days. Aftermath, Minerva McGonagall. She was heading toward the infirmary, and Harry Potter was leaving it when they passed each other. The look he gave her wasn't angry. It wasn't sad. It didn't say much at all. It was like 
like he was looking at her just long enough to make it clear that he wasn't deliberately avoiding looking at her. And then he looked away before she could figure out what look to give him in return, as though he wanted to spare her that as well. He didn't say anything as he walked past her. Neither did she. What could there possibly be to say? Aftermath, Fred and George Weasley. They actually yelped out loud when they turned the corner and saw Dumbledore. It wasn't that the headmaster had popped up out of nowhere and was staring at them with a stern expression. Dumbledore was always doing that. But the wizard was dressed in formal black robes and looking very ancient and very powerful, and he was giving the two of them a sharp look. Fred and George Weasley, spake Dumbledore in a voice of power. Yes, headmaster, they said, snapping upright and giving him a crisp military salute they'd seen in some old pictures. Hear me well, you are the friends of Harry Potter, is this so? Yes, headmaster, Harry Potter is in danger, he must not go beyond the wards of Hogwarts. Listen to me, sons of Weasley. I beg you, listen. You know that I am as Gryffindor as yourselves, that I too know there are higher rules than rules. But this, Fred and George, this one thing is of the most terrible importance. There must be no exception this time, small or great. If you help Harry to leave Hogwarts, he may die. Does he send you on a mission? You may go. Does he ask you to bring him items? You may help. But if he asks you to smuggle his own person out of Hogwarts, you must refuse. Do you understand? Yes, headmaster! They said it without even thinking, really, and then exchanged uncertain looks with each other. The bright blue eyes of the headmaster were intent upon them. No, not without thinking. If Harry asks you to bring him out, you must refuse. If he asks you to tell him the way, you must refuse. I will not ask you to report him to me, for that I know you would never do. But beg him on my behalf to go to me, if it is of such importance, and I will guard him as he walks. Fred, George, I am sorry to strain your friendship so, but it is his life. The two of them looked at each other for a long while, not communicating, only thinking the same things at the same time. They looked back at Dumbledore. They said, with a chill running through them as they spoke the name, Bellatrix Black. You may safely assume, said the headmaster, that 
It is at least that bad. Okay, got it. Aftermath Alistair Moody and Severus Snape When Alistair Moody had lost his eye, he had commandeered the services of the most erudite Ravenclaw, Samuel H. Lyle, whom Moody mistrusted slightly less than average because Moody had refrained from reporting him as an unregistered werewolf, and he had paid Lyle to compile a list of every known magical eye, and every known hint to their location. When Moody had gotten the list back, he hadn't bothered reading most of it, because at the top of the list was the Eye of Vance, dating back to an era before Hogwarts and currently in the possession of a powerful dark wizard ruling over some tiny forgotten hellhole that wasn't in Britain, or anywhere else you'd have to worry about silly rules. That was how Alistair Moody had lost his left foot and acquired the Eye of Vance, and how the oppressed souls of Uralad had been liberated for a period of around two weeks before another dark wizard moved in on the power vacuum. He had considered going after the left foot of Vance next, but had decided against it after he realized that would be just what they were expecting. Now, Mad-Eye Moody was turning slowly, always turning, surveying the graveyard of Little Hangleton. It should have been a lot gloomier, that place, but in the broad daylight it seemed like nothing but a grassy place marked by ordinary tombstones, demarcated by the chained twists of fragile, easily climbable metal that muggles used instead of wards. Moody could not comprehend what the muggles were thinking on that score, if they were pretending to have wards, or what, and he had decided not to ask whether muggle criminals respected the pretense. Moody didn't actually need to turn to survey the graveyard. The eye of Vance saw the full globe of the world in every direction around him, no matter where it was pointing. But there was no particular reason to let a former Death Eater like Severus Snape know that. Sometimes people called Moody paranoid. Moody always told them to survive a hundred years of hunting dark wizards and then get back to him about that. Mad-Eye Moody had once worked out how long it had taken him, in retrospect, to achieve what he now considered a decent level of caution. Weighed up how much experience it had taken him to get good instead of lucky, and had begun to suspect that most people died before they got there. Moody had once expressed this thought to Lyle, who had done some ciphering and figuring, and told him that a typical dark wizard hunter would die, on average, eight and a half times along the way to becoming paranoid. This explained a great deal, assuming Lyle wasn't lying. Yesterday, Albus Dumbledore had told Mad-Eye Moody that the Dark Lord had used unspeakable dark arts to survive the death of his body, and was now awake and abroad, seeking to regain his power and begin the wizarding war anew. Someone else might have reacted with incredulity. I can't believe you lot never told me this resurrection thing. 
Mad-Eye Moody said with considerable acerbity. Do you realize how long it'll take me to do the grave of every ancestor of every dark wizard I've ever killed who could have been smart enough to make a Harcrux? You're not just now doing this one, are you? I redose this one every year, Severus Snape said calmly, uncapping the third flask of what the man had claimed would be seventeen bottles, and beginning to wave his wand over it. The other ancestral graves we've been able to locate were poisoned with only the long-lasting substances, since some of us have less free time than yourself. Moody watched the fluid spiralling out of the vial and vanishing, to appear within the bones where Marrow had once been. But you think it's worth the effort of the trap, instead of just vanishing the bones? Who does have other avenues to life, should he perceive this one blocked? Snape said dryly, uncapping a fourth bottle. And before you ask, it must be the original grave, the place of first burial, the bone removed during the ritual and not before. Thus he cannot have retrieved it earlier, and also there is no point in substituting the skeleton of a weaker ancestor. He would notice it had lost all potency. Who else knows about this trap? Moody demanded. You, me, the headmaster, no one else. Moody snorted. Ah, did Albus tell Amelia? Bartimus, and that mechanical woman about the resurrection ritual. Yes. If Voldy finds out that Albus knows about the resurrection ritual and that Albus told them, Voldy'll figure that Albus told me, and Voldy knows I'd think this. Moody shook his head in disgust. What are these other ways Voldy could come back to life? Snape's hand paused on the fifth bottle. It was all disillusioned, of course. The whole operation was disillusioned, but that meant less than nothing to Moody. It just marked you in his eyesight as trying to hide. And the former Death Eater said, You don't need to know. You're learning, son, said Moody with mild approval. What's in the bottles? Snape opened the fifth bottle, gesturing with his wand to begin the substance flowing toward the grave, and said, This one, a muggle narcotic called L.S.D. A conversation yesterday put me in mind of muggle things, and L.S.D. seemed the most interesting option, so I hurried to obtain some. If it is incorporated into the resurrection potion, I suspect its effects will be permanent. What does it do? said Moody. It is said the effects are impossible to describe to anyone who has not used it, drawled Snape. And I have not used it. 
Moody nodded approval as Snape opened the sixth flask. What about that one? Love potion. Love potion, said Moody. Not the standard sort. It is meant to trigger a two-way bond with an unbearably sweet Vila woman named Verdandi, who the headmaster hopes might be able to redeem even him, if they truly loved each other. Gah, said Moody. That bloody sentimental fool. Agreed. Severus Snape said calmly, his attention focused on his work. Tell me you've at least got some Malaclar venom in there. A second flask. Oyokane powder. Either the fourteenth or fifteenth bottle. Ball stupefaction, Moody said, naming an extremely addictive narcotic with interesting side effects on people with Slytherin tendencies. Moody had once seen an addicted dark wizard go to ridiculous lengths to get a victim to lay hands on a certain exact portkey, instead of just having someone toss the target a trapped knut on their next visit to town. And, after going to all that work, the addict had gone to the further effort to lay a second portus on the same portkey, which had, on a second touch, transported the victim back to safety. To this day, even taking the drug into account, Moody could not imagine what could have possibly been going through the man's mind at the time he had cast the second portus. Tranth vile, said Snape. Basilisk venom, offered Moody. What? spat Snape. Snake venom is a positive component of the resurrection potion, not to mention that it would dissolve the bone and all the other substances. And where would we even get? Calm down, son. I was just checking to see if you could be trusted. Mad-Eye Moody continued his secretly unnecessary slow-turning, surveying the graveyard, and the potions master continued pouring. Hold on, Moody said suddenly. How do you know this is really where? Because it says Tom Riddle on the easily moved headstone, Snape said dryly. And I have just won ten sickles from the headmaster, who bet you would think of that before the fifth bottle. So much for constant vigilance. There was a pause. How long did it take Elbus to re- Three years after we learned of the ritual, said Snape, in a tone not quite like his usual sardonic drawl. In retrospect, we should have consulted you earlier. Snape uncapped the ninth bottle. We poisoned all the other graves as well with long-lasting substances, remarked the former Death Eater. It is possible that we are in the correct graveyard. He may not have planned this far ahead, back when he was slaughtering his family, 
And he cannot move the grave itself. The true location doesn't look like a graveyard anymore, Moody said flatly. Who moved all the other graves here and memory charmed the muggles? Not even Bellatrix Black would be told anything about that until just before the ritual started. No one knows the true location now except him. They continued their futile work.